Hello, and welcome to Nice Jewish Fangirls, a podcast where three Orthodox women discuss all of the wonderfully nerdy things that we are obsessed with. My name is Michal Schick, and I'm your host, and I'm joined by my wonderful co-hosts, S.M. Rosenberg. Hello. And Tamar Herman. Hi. Guys, guess what we're getting into? Pesach. <laughs> it's not real. Time is a social construct. <laughs> this is true. Unfortunately, so are our holidays, so... Uh, yeah, so um, not to, you know, shove you into a season if you're not ready for it, but uh, we are going to be discussing uh, Pesach, Passover, storytelling, um, and meta-narratives today. Um, before that, though, and before we turn to our usual segment of uh, current obsessions... Uh, I just want to make a plea for some iTunes reviews. This is just a bald face. Please leave Please us love a five-star rating love and us. a review. Yeah. We need or love. just any reviews. Just any reviews. <laughs> no, only good ones, really. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, mean, I mean on any platform. Only oh, reviews. Okay. Yes, yes, yeah. this is true. Platform. Yeah. You can also, re- we are on Spotify, uh, you know, feel conflicted about that. But we are on there. So if you want to review us on there, you can do that, too. And if you do have critical thoughts, you can just email them to us directly. You don't need to leave <laughs> yes, just, just tell us. <laughs> don't tell the internet before we know. Um, and to inspire you, I'm going to uh, read the uh, most recent iTunes review, which is not recent, which is partly our fault, because obviously we were on hiatus for some of the pandemic, because obviously. But it's um, also your fault, because mm-hmm. you didn't leave us reviews, whoever you are that is listening <laughs> to this right now. It's, it's your <laughs> fault. Um, well, this is a wonderful review. They left us five stars. It's from 084, and they say, As a non-religious person, I find this podcast both informative and entertaining. Relating all the best things in pop culture to Jewish culture and faith is such a great way to learn and expand my horizons. All three hosts have great chemistry with one another and give a great mix of humor and insight. I really hope the podcast continues on. Go listen now. Yay! That makes me feel very happy. Yeah, that's so sweet. Yeah, I just felt like warm in my chest heart place. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) the cold empty spot. Yeah, that void, that void that yearns for approval. (laughs) um yes so if you could do that we you know we don't have any incentives or prizes or whatever but we would we would very much appreciate it we might read it on a future podcast this is also that's our incentive (laughs) Uh, all right so pivoting over to our current obsessions um anyone want to go first um i want to go first because i just um before I get to my current obsession, I just want to backtrack to last week's episode where I mentioned we do- we did favorite drinks instead of current obsessions because it was a Purim-themed episode, and I talked about Shirley Temple, but I didn't mention a very uh, <laughs> story that I'm very, very fond of um, that surrounds the Shirley Temple, and since this is our meta-narrative uh, episode, I wanted to just shove it in here. Um, And it's about how once upon a time, though many years ago, when I was dating someone, I had mentioned that my favorite drink was the Shirley Temple. And he was (laughs) determined to make me a Shirley Temple. But there was a slight problem of him not knowing at all what comprises a Shirley Temple. 
So he was just kind of guessing, but he was he tried his best. And um, I think he knew that there was ginger ale in it, so he got that right. And then he just didn't know what else went into it. So he put, um, I'm pretty sure there was orange juice and there may have been extra sugar. I I'm honestly don't even know, but <laughs> I remember he made me this giant cup of it, and he was like, I think this is a Shirley Temple, maybe, and uh, it, it was not, but we called it <laughs> a Sarameira Temple <laughs> from then on. Um, I've never tried to reproduce it, um, but it is a... Uh, <laughs> A story that I um, still remember very fondly, and um, yes, it colors. Whenever I think of Shirley Temples, I also think of the Sarameira Temple, which hopefully no one else will ever try to replicate. So I wanted to share that. We'll have to serve it at our uh, nice Jewish fangirls convention. Oh God, please, coming, please don't. Coming never. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Uh, so, SM, did you want to take the first uh, obsession? Yeah, or? yeah. So I, I can thought go that was from her this. obsession, and I was so confused. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's a weird obsession. Yes, it's not an obsession. Um, it is just a uh, it's hitchhiking on last episode. Um, so my current obsession, um, I've had several since our last episode uh, because I ran out of Star Trek to watch. Um, and so I started catching up on all of the other shows that I had fallen behind on. And one of those shows is um, Resident Alien, which I don't think I've talked about on the podcast before. But if you haven't watched it, you should totally watch it because it is hilarious. And it has Alan Tudyk playing an alien. Um, and you 100% believe that his character is an alien in a human skin suit <laughs> because there's always something like even in the most you know innocuous of shots in the in the show he's always doing something with his body language with his facial expression that is just some slightly off and like you can tell but it's a small town that he's crash landed in and um he took over the identity of um of a person uh, that he killed because uh, he came he came to Earth first of all to destroy Earth as one does as one does yeah apparently this is different it was originally based on a comic book and in the comic book it's uh, he's he's just a scientist and observer or something like that um, and I think that's fine but I have seen many of those I haven't seen very many of you know an alien who is genuinely truly alien from us and has a completely different moral standard completely different cultural standard um and just absolutely does not fit with our understanding of other sentient beings um and i think that they do an amazing job of somehow making his character compelling despite the fact that his character is like completely misanthropic and a wannabe mass murderer uh and the way that he integrates into small town life because this small town uh he's very weird but so is everybody else so like they just kind of roll with it 
Um, except for one small child who can see through his alien camouflage and uh, can tell that he's an alien. And uh, there's this child tells his friend, um, who is this adorable little hijabi Muslim girl. Um, she would not like me describing her as adorable because she is extremely badass. <laughs> but uh, so there's the whole there's this kid element and there's also the mayor of the town uh who's got his own issues he's like super nice but also weird and also like a doormat and also kind of in competition with this other small town that's nearby and his marriage is kind of a wreck and it's his kid who sees the alien and so he's got to deal with you know thinking that his kid is losing his marbles and there's just like all of this stuff and there's a lot it takes place in uh in Colorado in a small town in Colorado I keep forgetting what the name is but um there's also a Native American tribe uh that is there and one of the major characters um who he the alien ends up bonding with um is uh is named Asta and I haven't read up on uh how this show has been received in uh, the Native community, but I do think that there is definitely more extensive representation on this show than pretty much any show, any mainstream show that I've watched. Um, and I think her character is fantastic, and they play off each other really well, because, yeah, she's she's fairly normal, all things considered, and he is very much not. Um, and he just has all of these amazing little things of the way that he learned about humanity was from TV. So, like, when things happen, he'll make the law and order sound. Chung! And he just grumbles to himself constantly. He's got this, you know, his narration. Um, and he's telling people... <laughs> he'll tell people completely inappropriate things. And, um, and he's just very curmudgeonly narration all the time. Like, when they surprise him with a surprise birthday party. Um, and he's just like, what are all these people doing in my house? I don't want them here. And he goes down to his bunker um, with uh, that he has created for when he destroys the world. And he, just, he goes down just like grumbling to himself of like, um, <laughs> like, I do not understand this human obsession with birthdays. Everything that is alive has been had a birthday it is not special <laughs> it is just a participation trophy and uh it's just constantly little grumblings like that um and oh man there are so many good characters and just like just the the police have this like really absurdist surreal humor dynamic that <laughs> of randomness that yeah, it cracks me up every time, and I could never attempt to um, explain why, why it's great. It's the kind of performance that you need to see to believe and to understand, because uh, it's so ridiculous. Um, and yeah, and even though there's like all this world-ending doom and the stakes are very high in that sense, um, it never feels like... It's, it never gets really dark. It never gets heavy. It's It's always... It's always light and fun, and um, it's free to watch on Sci-Fi um, on their website. So um, 
literally everyone should watch it. <laughs> that's 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 my obsession right now. Nice. I've I've heard I've heard a lot of good things about about that show. Um, it's not high on my list, but it is on there. So yeah. There's a character named Darcy that um, I have recently begun intensely vibing with, and I just want her to have all the good things in the world. <laughs> cool, cool. Um, I guess I'll just step in next, because um, I also have a TV show, uh, and that is um, not free to watch. It's uh, for it's it's airing on Apple TV+. Plus. Is that, I think that's what it's called. Apple TV, Apple mm-hmm. TV Plus. Apple I'll just plus, call it like Apple that. TV, but I think they write it with a plus sign to make it sound it, fancy. Yeah. Um, it's Apple's streaming service. You, you, you know of which I speak. Um, and it's a show called Severance, which I'd heard a lot of people talking about kind of on Twitter. Um, and I'd gotten some emails about it. Uh, and, and I wasn't really intending to watch it. And then I just kind of like did the thing that I do sometimes, which is when I have a, a real list of things that I should watch, like a real significant list. And then I'm like, I'll just watch this, that, this other thing, like randomly. Oh yeah. It's like, I have so many things and I, I, what should I watch? I'll just rewatch Star Trek. Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, but this, it's a, it's a hard, it's a hard show to describe because like the premise is very simple, which is like, people work for a company that has a procedure where it divides your work memories from your real life memories in the alleged pursuit of work-life balance um and it stars um adam scott who we all know and love from parks and recreation um ben wyatt but yeah he he's he's wonderful um i mean christopher walken is in it it's (laughs) which is amazing um john turturro is also in it and i like him i i think i started watching it the night before i saw the batman and he plays a very different character in the batman (laughs) so when i saw that i was like oh i'm oh okay right guess he's not irv in this one um but yeah it's it's very compelling it's very watchable it's kind of like thriller comedy in a weird kind of way like there's definitely very serious parts but there's also like quirky office stuff and like that guy who annoys you at work and you know and in the meantime there's a conspiracy going on um and part of what like makes it really like kind of scary is that you know you you don't necessarily when you hear the the concept think about all the like consequences of it but the practical consequence of having your memories divided is that you become two people and part of you who is in the company is only ever in the company so like you can leave you can walk out and then you go into the elevator where your memories switch over and then the next thing you know you're back at work and like it never stops you never ever have a break that version of yourself um well that sounds just, miserable yeah it's really you know because like theoretically it's like okay enforced work-life balance all right cool but then it's like oh no that's not actually balance it's just like i wouldn't mind you know being the vacation half of that person but i i don't want to be the work half <laughs> yeah yeah and like the it's it raises interesting questions about like your responsibility to your inside part your your work half and like who like really doesn't know anything about the world or about you and like what it's i don't know it's very it, it raises a lot of interesting questions it's also just like beautifully shot like 
there's a lot of intentional symmetry in the uh, and the way the show is constructed, and it's it's uh, it's really cool. So if you do have Apple TV Plus, I would definitely like I would I would plus the hype. It is <laughs> worth a watch for sure, and it's nine episodes. I think the seven episodes have aired as of this recording. So and you said it's called Severance. It is called Severance, which I have now learned is spelled with an A, and not just a whole bunch of E's. Yeah. I, I think, you know, it's a play on the uh, yes, severance yes, being yeah. fired. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. Um, so that's mine. Uh, Tamar, how about you? Um, I'll keep with the trend and I will talk about a TV show too. Um, this one is a little bit less sci-fi and a little bit more romancy. Uh, it's Bridgerton. So <laughs> not necessarily the most, I don't know, fangirly um one but it is because this is actually not necessarily a sharing my obsession about Bridgerton but more kind of a rant about how I'm so annoyed that it feels like nobody actually working on Bridgerton actually likes romance novels um which is a huge fandom and I enjoyed the show I enjoy watching both seasons for various reasons but it doesn't really feel like it has the like it doesn't feel like it's trying to take what people like about romance novels and put them onto screen. It's just kind of like drawing inspiration from them, but like so loosely because you need a dramatic plot. And um, I mean, it's it's like a Shonda Rhimes show. So of course you need dr- drama, but like, and, and romance novels do have drama. Like there's still novels. There are, there are ups and downs of it. But um, I think I liked the second season more than the first one for many reasons. Um, but it also, like, was taking a little bit even more away from, like, the romance novel-y type of thing. And, like, they did some weird character arcs that, like, just don't exist in the book series. Um, which, like, makes sense. But, like, at one point I was just, like, wondering, like, are you just totally gonna change this whole character's story? Even though the series is ostensibly based on a series of books of siblings' romances and she has a book. So, like... She clearly has a story. Um, but, like, the average... I don't think the average person watching Bridgerton has read the books at this point. Like, I just don't think that, that that's who they're targeting with this show. Like, everyone who has, wa- who has read the Julia Quinn books ha- is watching Bridgerton, but I don't think they care about us. <laughs> so I'm kind of, like, love-hating the experience. But I think it's a really fun show. And if you don't watch... Rom- if you don't read romance novels, it's still really, really, really fun and engaging. Um, I really, really, really liked this year's, um, female lead. Um, hold on. I literally was just reading her name and I like forgot it right now. Um, Simone Ashley. I was thinking it was Catherine Ashley because she plays a character named Kate. Um, but yeah, so I think it's really fun. I feel like neither of you will ever touch Bridgerton with like a ten foot pole, but you you should if you ever just. Stranger want, like... things have happened, but yeah, I'm not so much into historical stuff, and I'm not so much into, um, the straight up romance stuff. Oh, I'm pretty sure the historical element is uh is not an not an angle you need to worry about. <laughs> it is. I mean, it is an interesting angle because there is, but like they're not. They're not remotely addressing anything that's, like, going on in history at the time. Like, you're just, like, supposed to know these things. Like, they'll randomly reference, like, Napoleon. 
and you're like, ah, yes. If you know history or if you've been a long-term, like, historic romance novel reader, because these are things, like, he comes up all the time. He's, like, a major plot point. Um, but, like, the I don't think the average viewer is, like, understanding the context that, like, Colin could go to Europe, but his older brother, for a grand tour, but his older brothers couldn't because of Napoleon. Like, I don't know. It, it really, <laughs> it really, hold on, I'm looking up the year right now. Yeah, so, like, the second season literally took place in between Napoleon's first defeat and Waterloo. So, like, you have one brother who goes to Europe and he came back from his grand tour, but they never, like, really addressed that the other older brothers couldn't, even though everybody used to do that. So it's just, like, a subtle nod to history happening. And, like, I don't think anyone, like, they're not, like, really trying to show, like, living in the times. Like, otherwise they would be not doing what they're doing with diversity, which is great for representation on screen, but not remotely accurate. Like, they're literally just like, oh, ha, ha, look, we have these Indian girls who are now going to marry, one of them is going to marry a Viscount. And you're just like, hmm, wonder how well that would have actually gone way back when. Like... It doesn't matter. Like, I'm, I'm putting that out there. I don't think it matters. It's a show. This isn't a show that's trying to be historically accurate, but it is nice to have some, like, there is some, um, like, a nice nod that the queen um, is not just white because uh, she was actually of biracial, or I think she was Moorish, so she was mixed. Um, so, like, that's a cool thing, and that, like, did get me interested in looking up that historical thing, but, like, the show isn't really, like, trying to be true to life. It's just trying to be, like, a fun sh- romantic show sort of based on romance novels. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I think it's fun. I, I think it's Sounds not Sounds like an ice cream we... sundae with occasional historical sprinkles. Yeah. And like, I think I'm trying to think of like a good, uh, like, med- like sci-fi metaphor, like maybe the modern Star Wars movies, like it still has the same, like, people but the but like and you like enjoy elements of it but like it doesn't it's definitely not the source material (laughs) so yes watch bridgerton if you so would like yeah it's possible (laughs) i'm just automatically suspicious of anything that is super super popular (laughs) because i am a snob and i hate love so yeah (laughs) michelle hates love so that's never gonna happen (laughs) i knew she was gonna go there my my sister did make me listen to apparently there are two people who soundtrack yeah they did a musical of it of bridgerton on on tiktok and they like got nominated for a uh whatchamacallit tony just based on tiktok uh yeah so y'all made me listen to the the first uh the like the opening number can you send it to me? I it's have good. no idea. I didn't I mean, have TikTok I... for many, many months because I was in Hong Kong. TikTok um, Bridgerton musical. Um, okay, I'll, I'll go find I'll it. I'll send you the NPR uh, article about it so you can link from there. Oh, she has great hair. It's okay. I'll find it. Oh, you I got found it. it. I found it. Cool. Um, cool. Um, no, but I've I've heard a lot of people say that the second season is is really good. If um. They, uh, if you like Bridgerton. So I'm glad for people that it's back. I'll say I, I, I know a lot of people really love it. So I'm, I'm happy for them that it's back. That'll be me when Ted Lasso comes back. <laughs> I need to get into that. Oh, it's so good. Uh, <laughs> all right. So let's move on to our main topic, which is 
yeah, I guess, I guess you would call it Pesach and meta narratives, based partly on the idea that the Haggadah is obviously a kind of a story of stories, um, and you know the and we are meta narrating it. Yes, exactly. It's it's kind of a meta situation, right? To clarify for anyone who maybe has never been at a Passover Seder, the Haggadah is the book that we peruse throughout the night. And it tells the story of like Moses and Egypt and leaving Egypt, but also it's very convoluted and tells stories of people who are telling the stories of this. And we're telling the stories. So we're sometimes reading stories about people reading stories. And it has a lot of rituals. Lots of rituals. But... But we're, I think we're talking more about the, the, the Seder does have rituals, but it literally means yeah, like. But the, the rituals order. are like part of the storytelling process. So you are kind mm-hmm. of like interactively telling the story. Because but... otherwise kids would not pay attention. Because <laughs> the Seder literally means order. Um, and that's, it's the Hebrew word for order. And you're supposed to do things in a specific order that um, has been handed down for generations and there are many uh Haggadot now with all kinds of different um approaches and commentaries but for the most part they all stick with the same basic structure um and there's even a song that goes with it that I'm not going to sing but um (laughs) yeah so it's 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 definitely a a constructed narrative, um, but not constructed in anything in any way that resembles like literature as we know it. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. kind of a mishmash of all kinds of things. So the Magid portion, um, the the first kind of major part of the Magid portion is um, called um, Avadim Hayinu, which is we were slaves in uh, in Egypt, Paro. Wait, does it start um, with Manishtana? Well, no, it actually starts with, um, with, uh, Halach Ma'anya. Right. Yeah, I was about to say, you guys <laughs> yeah, are, like, so jumping parts, so much. Sorry. <laughs> you know what? Scratch that. I'm just gonna, wait, yeah, we're gonna, I'm, I'm getting You guys my, are terrible on the Haggadah. I'm literally looking at Chabad.org right now, so I'm just like. Yeah, I have, I have worked the on, on two Haggadahs yeah. now with my dad, um, his Hogwarts Haggadah and his superhero Haggadah, and I still don't know all of the parts of the Haggadah, yeah. so it's okay. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that, like, when you look at it, it's like, oh, yes, of course, but yeah, it's not... It yeah, comes it back doesn't... to you, but it's, you know, it's like riding a bike, but it's it's not something that you generally walk around, like, knowing off the top of your head. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the, the main, I guess, storytelling part of the Haggadah is called Magid, um, and it, it really does start with storytelling um you know so it starts with um a paragraph called um halach ma'anya which is in aramaic i think right and that's why yes because that was the vernacular of the time that it that the haggadah was written and it uh was meant to be an invitation to everybody so you wanted it to be in a language that they could understand and ironically we kept it because we are jews and now no one understands aramaic but we still say it right (laughs) Uh, so um yeah so we start with that and that kind of establishes we were slaves in egypt um then we go to a lot of people's favorite part one of the more famous parts of the seder which is the manishtana the four questions um none of these questions have anything to do with stories 
why is this night different from all other nights? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, the, it's it's all about kind of the ritual, um, but not specifically storytelling. Um, and then we move on to kind of a, a really interesting paragraph, which is Avadim Hayinu. We were slaves to um, Paro or Pharaoh in Egypt. And it basically tells the whole the whole thing in like a couple lines. But it and doesn't then, answer the questions. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> and then from there, we kind of start going into like a lot of the telling and retelling and debate and discussion. And yeah, but I find it really interesting that the 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 narrative part is really kind of boiled down into, you know, that pretty small paragraph, um, you know. So sometimes, yeah. you know, if I'm feeling particularly hungry on a, on a Seder night, I'm sometimes like, okay, we could, that's it, we did it. <laughs> it's like um, the intro, but then you get to later in it that it's like, well, if if you don't mention these specific three things, then it doesn't count as having told the story. Um, and there's, yeah, so there's that. And then there are stories about rabbis, yeah, rabbis who stayed up uh, all night t- telling the story somehow, even though I-, I don't know what they talked about. It's not, it doesn't tell us what they talked about. It just says they were talking. They were expounding upon the story. Of, uh, yeah. 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 But so, you know, because this is a, you know, a, a, a holiday based around not just a story, but the act of telling the story, um, we kind of wanted to talk about the telling of stories, I guess. Um, we're, we're kind of, I think specifically focusing on the idea of like stories within stories, because that is to some extent what the Haggadah is. Um, so my favorite but, kind. Yes. But there are other kinds of like meta narratives. And I kind of wanted to start with one that's like super top of my mind because it just happened like two days ago at this point. By the time this episode comes out, it will be like ancient, ancient news and internet time. But um the Oscars just happened, and uh, Chris Rock made a joke that um, made fun of Jada Pinkett Smith's um, alopecia, and Will Smith, Jada's husband, got up on stage and smacked him. And it's amazing how this one moment has gotten everybody to coalesce around it with so many meta-narratives. There's just so many people coming at it from so many different perspectives and explaining how they see it as fitting in with this particular narrative of society and this particular narrative of of people and of culture. And like people are coming at it from the perspective of black women. People are coming at it from the perspective of black women's hair. People are coming at it from the perspective of ableism. People are coming at it from the perspective of um, do you answer uh, violence? Is violence an appropriate thing to answer uh, words with? And um, there's just what is it, you know, from the perspective of, of black men and of violence in, um, in black culture when used to defend others. And there's just so many uh, social and meta narratives going on. And I felt like, you know, that is just an encapsulation of how humans just, we have a need to create stories around stories or around moments so that they fit within a story. 
um, and nothing obviously exists in a vacuum. And, and that does tie in with this topic about how, um, and about how you can possibly tell a story every year, you tell the same story, but everybody always tries to put a new spin on the story in some way. And the people often have a, a tradition of getting a new Haggadah so that they have new commentary. And um, my dad r- put out his stuff about like comparing pretty modern stuff like Harry Potter and uh, the Marvel movies to um, to the themes of the Haggadah to try and make it more accessible and more interesting and all of these things. Um, yeah, so I do think that um, the meta narratives that we create um, they well they help us they help us remember things. I think that people are may remember this uh, Oscars moment out of all of the things that happened at the Oscars, people are probably going to remember this the most. Um, and I don't know if they're going to remember all the meta narratives, <laughs> but um, a lot of people definitely spent a lot of time thinking about it <laughs> um, and sharing it. And there are probably a few, you know, some of the, the takes are just, you know, please stop. But other takes are, I found, you know, really interesting and, um, and I may remember them in the future because of the way that, that people told their own stories around this particular moment. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting in terms of like, I guess the idea of stories as a repetitive force and meta narratives as a repetitive force that, that enforces memory. Um, I think that's definitely an interesting angle on it. Um, and that's definitely, I mean, that's 100% what we're doing in the Haggadah. Like, it's explicitly, you know, for, you know, the purposes of teaching and remem- You're supposed to say it every day. Yeah. There's a section about how you're supposed to to mention the uh, exodus from Egypt and that God saved us. You're supposed to say it every day. Um, and, yeah, there's a section of, like, where do we where do we say it and how do we know that we're supposed to say it? Um yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely uh, repetition. Yeah, and I, I kind of, yeah, th- that's something I hadn't thought about in terms of, like, the perpetuation of it. Um, a, a, a fictional and non-immediately relevant story that I was I was kind of thinking of in a, in a kind of comparison is The Princess Bride. Um, mm-hmm. Because that that's is, on my list. Yeah, yeah. I made a list. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, no, that's, The Princess Bride is, um, you know, the movie does this, obviously. It's it's the story of a, a grandfather telling his... The book does grandson. it to a whole other yeah, degree. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, so the, the book, if you haven't read the book, it's, um, it's really worth reading because it is actually two stories. It's like, and not, not, a, not in terms of like a frame story and a, and a real story. It's actually two narratives. Um, and they, they intertwine really beautifully, um, of, you know, a man who's kind of grappling with the, uh, the reality of his family and his career and the way that this Princess Bride story has kind of participated, like, been, been part of his his life life. that way. Yeah. Um, and I mean, no hatred on the movie. It's all lies, though. It's all lies. Well, yes, it's it's also, I mean, there's an extra level of it, which is that the whole thing, both, both narratives are false, even though the, the, 
I guess, surface level narrative is presented as true. Um, and like, and yeah, and he goes into such detail and you're like, how, how could this not be true? <laughs> but like, he's talking about really personal things and, and how it, how it impacted him. And it just feels so true, but it's not but we do have books like that and stories like that in our lives. This just doesn't happen to be one of them. Right. Um, yeah. And you know, the the movie is great and it, and it does that as well, but it is, it is functioning more on a, on a frame story um, perspective. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel like there could be some, some very interesting, I, I'm not, I'm not as fluent in the, and the princess bride as I know some people are, but I, I feel like you could make some good Pesach, um, you know, Divri Torah based on the Princess Bride. It's 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 got a lot there in terms of both narrative and kind of. It has you know. Billy Crystal and he's Jewish, so. <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, <laughs> that's all you need. Also, the writer, the writer William Goldman. Yes. Um, um, and there, there's some jokes in uh, in the in the book, at least, about the the alleged author of the Princess Bride book. Yes. Being, S. Morgenstern yes. was definitely not an Irish Catholic, as he says. <laughs> yeah. Um, what about you, Tamar? Any uh, any thoughts on any particular meta narratives you were thinking of? In regard to the Haggadah, exactly, or other meta narratives that I like? Either to one, about? anyway. Um, so I actually was contemplating doing one of two recent. Um, I feel like this is annoying because you guys will not notice at all. Um, there's two popular Korean TV shows recently that I've been watching that both have meta narratives. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I was trying to pick one for my um, current obsession. And then I was like, wait, no, that has a meta narrative. And then I was thinking about the other one for my current obsession. And then I was like, wait, no, that also has a meta narrative. Um, so there are two popular shows. One of them you can watch on Netflix if you are so inclined. And that's 25, 25, 21, I never remember. 2521, yes. Um, so that one's on Netflix, and it pretty much, it takes, like, the story is a girl, she's a teenager in, in 2022, reading her mother's diary from the early, ni- the late 90s, and, like, the early start of the millennium, and, like, finding out about her mother's, like, first love, and her mother was a fencer, a professional fencer, so she was, like, learning about her career and everything, so it's, like, you keep on flashing back to the past and the present trying to like see where the mom is at now and like what happened to the boyfriend and where are her friends and all this. So like you're jumping across time. So I think that's like interesting because you're seeing it all like sort of told from the mother's diary. They're, they're, they're not doing such a great job on that. Honestly, like they're just showing you everything. So it's not necessarily an interesting perspective in that regard, but I just think the whole idea of storytelling, like, I love the, you know, the present, there is a present reader who is engaged in the story of the past. And then the other one was, um, it's called Yumi's Cells, uh, Yumi, Y-U-M-I, and that one uh, is a little harder to find. You, ha- I'm watching it on Viki, which is like a... They import a lot of content from Asia and Latin America. So that's like a specific international streaming platform. I think also Middle East. Um, but the show is it's based on a popular webtoon. Um, but it's essentially Inside Out's concept where like you see this like the the cells in her brain like having conversations. Um, but unlike Inside Out, she is an adult and she's 
dating and like it's so funny like you sometimes are like seeing her like naughty self be like oh my gosh I want like a night with my boyfriend and all the other cells are like different reactions like there's a there's a sensitive cell there's a love cell there's like a modesty cell who like they keep on kicking out because they're like no Yumi should like have nice nights with her boyfriend um (laughs) but it's it's just like it's really funny and really cute like my mom I'm currently staying with my parents and like my mom keeps on like walking past me as I'm watching and she's just like this is just adorable and like then like five seconds later you're having like a serious conversation outside of the cells like in the real world where like they're discussing of an investor investing in somebody's business and like it's just like very um intense but it's like really cute because like like the last episode I watched because um the first season ended but I'm currently catching up and there'll be a second one soon like the episode I was watching, like one of her cells snuck into her boyfriend's body to go find his like secrets of his inner heart and to see it, where she was at the top of his like brain list of priority things. And it's just like so funny the idea that like her cell is gonna sneak into his body. And it's just so cute because like they're supposed to be representing um like their thoughts. And and I just think it's like such a fun way to like show that. So like there are often conversations like internal conversations happening through the cells being really hilarious. Um, and I just think like, obviously that's a little bit not like Haggadah, but I think it's, it's cool to see just like different ways people tell stories within stories. Yeah. And there's a rich Jewish tradition um, outside of the Haggadah of um, especially Hasidic stories that my dad loves to tell Um he has a whole book of Baal Shem Tov stories and I haven't read it, but um, he used to tell us stories, you know, to keep us entertained. Um, sometimes he would, he would have, it, they would be stories about us, the children and uh, something we were doing. And then he would, we would go to the magical mitzvah wonderland and we would have some kind of uh, obstacle to overcome that would teach us a lesson about the real world. <laughs> so. Was your dad D and Ding you guys Baal Shem Tov? <laughs> No, no, it didn't. Uh, those stories never intersected with the Baal Shem Tov. Um, the Baal Shem Tov stories were separate. Um, but he has a book called Why the Baal Shem Tov Laugh. And there are just a lot of these kinds of stories of like the Baal Shem Tov did something odd or unusual. And his Talmudim didn't know why he did it. And they asked him. And then he tells them this whole long story or he takes them somewhere and he introduces them to this random couple that nobody had had met before. And he says, can you please tell me the story of, you know, what just happened this past weekend with your family? And then uh, and then they'll tell him, you know, well, we uh, thought thought we weren't going to be able to make Shabbos. And then my wife found um, her wedding dress and realized that the buttons were made of silver and that she could sell the silver and buy food for Shabbos. And we were so happy that we danced around the, the table um, at three points during the meal. And the students realized that those are the three points when the Baal Shem Tov laughed during their Shabbos meal and stuff like that of like some kind of, you know, mystical connection. Um, and yeah, there are a lot of those. I, there's one that I remember loving as a, as a child that I cannot for the life of me remember. Um, but I know that it involved, um, Istanbul and a sultan. And it was a story within a story. And like, I, I, I can't tell you what it was, but 
<laughs> but I'm going to have my dad tell me it at some point. What? A movie or a story? A story. Um, I don't think that any of these ever were made into movies. Um, but there are like, there are definitely a lot of Jewish storytelling tapes. Um, like, I don't know if you have ever listened to, um, Shmuel Kunda. Um, Shmuel Kunda did a lot of these tapes that we listened to as kids. Um, one of them was, one series was called When Zadie Was Young. And they are all, you know, told as frame stories of a grandfather telling his, uh, uh, grandchildren stuff to entertain them. Um, and some things like are very much clearly meant to, to embellish and exaggerate. Um, and sometimes the kids believe it and sometimes they're skeptical and there's a whole, you know, element of fictionalized memoir in it and how much could possibly be real. Um, and some things are just there for, you know, meta jokes for the, for the listeners of like, he says that the shul that they had was called Anshe Kartoffel, and I learned later that Kartoffel is Yiddish for potato. So they were like the people of the potato, <laughs> and I'm sure that was never an actual synagogue. Um, yeah, so I just remember all of these story tapes and stories that I grew up on that were often told as um, as stories within stories, uh, and. I remember my my biggest pet peeve with one, a book that I read. It wasn't a Jewish book. It was called uh, Where the Red Fern Grows. Um, my biggest pet peeve with that, I, I loved the book otherwise, but the one thing that bothered me was that it starts out with the character um, in the present, and then it goes into him, like something happens in the first chapter that causes him to remember the past, but you get to the, you you get the whole story in the past and it's a you know it's a beautiful story slightly traumatizing um if you love dogs don't read it um <laughs> but um this is a a really lovely story um and we heard it on audiobook but it never got back to the beginning of like the frame you know it just kind of you know it it didn't it didn't it didn't it wasn't actually necessary for it to get back to the frame later like I reread it and I was like yeah I mean it doesn't really need to get back to the frame because there wasn't really anything major happening um it was just kind of like an intro um and not so much a frame but I remember being so annoyed that I like I never got closure on what happened to him in the present (laughs) I I think that actually speaks just to an important part of this which is perspective and point of view you know and that frame stories a lot of the time really play with who who the main character is or who who your your eyes are in the story um mm-hmm. and you know and, and like uh, you know to go back to the princess bride like it's actually very very literal because the the part of that conceit is that this is that william golding is G- goldman goldman I one of them golden. wrote Lord of the Flies and one of them wrote The Princess Bride and they're very different. I have different. a book on my shelf um, over there and I'm pretty sure it's yeah, Goldman. I, I think it's Goldman too. Um, yeah, so William Goldman um, is is editing uh, the, the Princess Bride book and he's taking out the boring parts and he's, you know, investing his own perspective <laughs> in that. Um, and like, yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting to think of the Haggadah in that way because obviously like the perspective is like, the Jews, you know, like it's yeah, but like, who is telling the story of the Haggadah? Like, who compiled this? You never really know. Like, there's no one 
there's no one author of the Haggadah that is credited, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, it's just, it seems like it, it feels like a patchwork thing that did come together and doesn't have a clear defined perspective. Well, it, I, I would kind of disagree because I think that the perspective is sort of like defined as the, like literally the Jewish people. Us. Yeah. It's, you know, we were slaves in yeah. Egypt and, and, you know, that plays with time as well because it's, it's very much, you know, it, it, like part of the theme is that, you know, this, this happened to our ancestors, but it, it is as if it happened to us. And it's, that's why it's important to pass on to children. It's as if it happened to you. Um, you know, and it, it, it does kind of create that very kind of us, them kind of perspective in, in the, in the narrative. Um, I mean, a lot of Jewish history is like that for understandable reasons. Um, but like, I'm thinking of, you know, the, the, like the four, the four sons, um, you know, which is, which is its whole, a, a whole topic all on its own. But, um, you know, <laughs> um, not to go too deep into Speaking it. Speaking of the slapping yeah. <laughs> Um, but, uh, oh gosh, I'm honestly, I'm not that excited for the, like, is the wicked son truly wicked? Maybe he is the best of us. Yeah, whatever. We can, I can, oh I can go without the, the wicked son takes this year, I'll be honest, but, um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, but that's also an issue of perspective, right? Because, like, part of, you know, the, uh, there are a lot of different, you know, interpretations of all this, but one of them that I've been told many times is that, you know, the four sons kind of represent, like, the, the different ways of teaching and the different, you know, needs that people have, mm -hmm. which is also a perspective issue. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. What do you guys think about? But there's also somebody assigned those adjectives, but we don't know who assigned the adjectives and by what metric they were mm -hmm. using, you know? Yeah. I mean, on, on that kind of meta level, the Haggadah is actually very interesting because it is an unsourced text in that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, honestly, the thing that, that kept coming back to me was, uh, an episode of Avatar The Last Airbender, which is the Ember Island Players. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, which is amazing. Um, and it's, it, it is very perspective heavy. Um, but if, if you haven't watched or need a refresher, um, the Ember Island Players is an episode that takes place just before the, the, the big final conclusion of, of the big climax of the show. Um, the big battle's about to happen, and then everyone just goes to see a play. Um, but they're in en enemy territory, so the play that they see is their adventures. But from the perspective of, you know, them being kind of... It, it would be the way they were perceived by their enemies, and also by people who didn't know very much about them. Um, and it's having... It's... it's, it's uh, it, um, you see the characters react to the way that they're portrayed. Um, some of them are happy about it. Some of them are not so happy about it. Oh man, it's like it's yeah, it's like Rogers the musical, yes. um, which I saw a clip of from Hawkeye. Um, oh, the recent Hawkeye series, <laughs> they made a, a, an Avengers musical within the show, um, and like everybody's reactions are just like, "What is yeah. this?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Hawkeye's like that guy wasn't even there. Reference to Ant Man, it's. <laughs> Uh, it's great yeah but uh yeah the i mean the thing that like sticks out to me about the ember island players is that it it is very much a like 
history is written or or the stories that are it's kind of like the take point that you were making sm about like it it the story is what people like decide it is like in the moment and subsequently so like even though the story that they're watching isn't over the story that the of the play actually is over and it ends in the way that the protagonists do not want it to end they're defeated you know it's it's a it's a it's mm-hmm. a bad ending um and yeah, I don't know. That's that's kind of yeah. This actually just reminded me of something that wasn't on my list, but should have been. Um, there's an episode of Star Trek Voyager. <laughs> I knew um, you were gonna say that. Yes, I was waiting for course. Star Trek. I like yeah. I believe she. I mean, of course, there's long. gonna be yeah. They've done everything on Star Trek, but um, so this episode is called Living Witness, and it starts out. Um, with none of the the characters, not the regular characters, it sh- it shows them like in bizarre. It's the the same actors, but they're like in bizarro world where they're acting completely out of character and super evil and nasty and just psychopathic, murderous, all that stuff. Um, and you don't really know what's going on. Like, is this a, some kind of alternate dimension? Is this a mirror universe? And then you zoom out and you see that you were watching a holographic story in a museum. Um, and this museum is meant to tell the history of this, this society. And there's like, there are a couple of factions. Um, and this is, like a focal point where um, one faction took the uh, took the upper hand, or um, it, it it impacted you know the entire racial um, narrative of this society, um, and then the uh, the only character who appears as himself in this episode is the Doctor from Voyager, who is a holographic character himself. Because he um, he was an emergency medical hologram. He was intended to be like a supplement to the regular doctor, but because Voyager gets stuck out in the middle of nowhere um, and is trying to get home, they uh, lost their doctor and they had to turn. They had only him as their doctor, um, so he can. He is basically a computer program um, of projected light and force fields to allow him to interact with things. Um, and so he looks, you know, like a person, but he, um, he, he isn't affected by physical things like regular people are. And therefore they, uh, one of the museum curators found, um, a backup module that contained the doctor's program and he switches it on and he, starts interrogating the doctor of like, why did you do all of this? And you're a war criminal and we're going to put you on trial. And the doctor is completely confused because this is not what happened at all. Um, and he, uh, and he tries to reconstruct, um, what happened from his perspective. Um, and this is seven, it turns out this is 700 years later. Um, and that the Voyager crew and their, um, and their interaction with this society um, that left such a it left a huge mythological mark on this society, um, but they 
clearly only are piecing it together from extremely inaccurate records. Um, and yeah, and then there's all this, all the way the, that the society reacts to being confronted with, um, a witness. It's called, the episode is called living witness for a reason. Um, and he is, uh, uh, and he's dealing with, you know, the possible repercussions of telling his side of the story. And yeah, it's just, it's such a fun episode that plays with perspective so much um, and about the way that, that history is written and that how it can be pieced together wrongly um, and that sometimes our long-held beliefs are challenged by new evidence. Um, yeah, oh, it's, it's a really good episode. Um, and the actor who plays the doctor, um, Robert Picardo, is just one of the one of the best parts of, of the show in general. Um, and this is one of his like showpiece episodes. That reminds me a little bit of, um, the Witcher actually. I mean, there's a couple of things it reminds me of, but one of them is, is the Witcher, not necessarily. Well, I mean, I guess there's a meta narrative to it. Um, you know, because one of the characters is, uh, is a bard, um, there is an element of stories being told as the story is unfolding. Um, and, and having it narrativized in that way. Um, and then in, in later books, the author will kind of cut back and forth, you know, to centuries later. And, you know, this is what people thought then. And, you know, there's, there's a, a very important battle that, you know, that, that is almost immediately kind of narrativized from different perspectives. And actually, I've, I've spoken about this in other places, but like, if you want to just read an amazing, amazing piece of fantasy battle war writing, it is very different from anything I've read. Um, read The Battle of Brenna. It's chapter eight in The Lady of the Lake by Andrzej Sapkowski. Really fantastic and harrowing and, um, yeah, a, a good argument against war in in all of its forms. Um, yeah, sorry, that was a little bit of a tangent, but... Um, no, makes sense. All connected. Yeah. But I mean, you know, the, again, that goes back to, like, history and, like, are we talking about... You know, is, is is kind of national history, national memory is is national history and national memory like the same thing, right? Is that is that the same kind of story mm -hmm. or is it a different kind of story story? Like mm -hmm. I And who decides what becomes national memory and how does it work? Right. Like I was I was listening to a an episode of a podcast about the Bar Kokhba rebellion. Um and it was very interesting oh, because it was it was not a Jewish podcast and it was very interesting to to hear like what parts of you know the this academic's version of the story lined up with you know what I knew of it and what parts didn't and you know where you could you could see those things aligning even if they didn't seem to and and where they blatantly contradicted um and then it was interesting because there were parts where you know the the historian was kind of like yeah this this part of it I can't really explain and I was like, that's just so interesting to me. Like, it's, you know, it it it's not necessarily a failure of scholarship. I, I mean, I, I actually, I think it's it's good when people admit what they can't explain. But, like, just... Yeah, no, I'm surprised. Usually they just make stuff yeah, up yeah. to fill in the yeah, gaps. Um, so that was, that was interesting. I don't know. What was the biggest takeaway? The biggest takeaway from the Bar Kokhba episode? Yeah, like the biggest thing. That what podcast was this? First of all, I need it was to know. Called History hit. They just uh, no, 
nope, not history hit. It's called history hack. Um, and uh, they do kind of just random topics. It was like the first time I actually saw them do anything about uh, a Jewish topic at all. Um, so my ears definitely perked up. Um, but also, like, it, it was partly interesting to me also because, like, a lot of the podcasts I listen to talk a lot about Roman history. And, like, I hate the Romans. I think they were terrible. <laughs> like, just a... <laughs> A personal grudge against the Roman just, Empire. Just for the record, <laughs> yeah. My historical perspective on the yeah, Romans yeah, is they, thumbs well, down. Yeah, to, boo. Um, but um, so to, <laughs> to hear, you know, this part of the story was very interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was. It was. I guess the takeaway was kind of like, you know, well, first of all, I mean, there were there were parts of it that were very interesting that I didn't know, which is about like the, the there was. Some some of how they know how it ended with some of the people in like in the in the caves, um, or because they actually found like letters from um, from a woman actually who had um, who had been hiding there, um, and like you know they they found a lot of artifacts and and basically these people all starved to death um, because the Romans wouldn't let them out of the caves. Um, but yeah, I guess yeah, I guess you could say the takeaway was like. Uh, just a very strange incident and in that it was a very powerful, you know, thing that, that learning, learning about it from a secular perspective is very interesting because they were, you know, the, there was a lot of talk about how he was, he was, you know, proclaiming himself like the Nasi of Israel. And, you know, the guy referenced like, you know, the, you know, and Rabbi Akiva thought he was the, you know, the Messiah and it, you know, um, just, mm -hmm. a, a, it, it was interesting to hear it treated as not necessarily unique because you know the romans were at the time kind of comparing it to to some rebellions that they had in like in in britain um but definitely like an unusual circumstance that and something that went on for quite a bit longer than they had anticipated um yeah i i'll, I'll definitely include the link in the show notes it was uh, a very interesting topic to listen to and and i i added the woman's name to my list of historical Jewish women who died in sad circumstances that people don't know about, which is now a list of three. <laughs> so, isn't that like most Jews? It is. Jewish it women? is. But like <laughs> these, these women were all like you just have. Well, three yeah, names. They, they all had particularly interesting Notable lives. Ones. Like one of them was, you know, um, yeah. worked for you know the the uh, in the in the Sultan's harems in. Um, uh, Istanbul, and one of them was again sultans in Istanbul. I don't know what it is, but like Jewish history has got like a lot of sultan stories. Yeah, yeah. That's because that's where Jews were. Yeah, I know, but it's just like we don't use the title sultan anymore for anything except like yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. Nobody why does that fall out of fashion? A, uh, after the fall of the Ottoman. Yeah, I feel like you know people use it as like you know, for, for kind of, uh, illustrative purposes, um, like Babe Ruth's nickname, one of many, he had many nicknames, but Babe Ruth's nickname, uh, was the Sultan of Swat. <laughs> so I guess people do use it when it's, you know, when it's convenient, uh, and it, uh, helps make a nice alliterative nickname, but it's not a title that is in use anymore. Yeah. 
But anyway, uh, yes, part of my hobby is listening to other podcasts and finding out about um, Jewish women I didn't know about who I could maybe talk about on some episodes. I don't, I don't know, you know, one of my like vague goals is like research them and write novels about them. Um, but that's a very big yes. thing to do. So uh, <laughs> maybe I'll just, I'll just do a little research and um, talk about some of their experiences. Um, they were all business women. They were all involved in money and fairly powerful. And uh, yeah, not good things happened. Wait, I learned about an Italian one recently. Was that Dona, Dona Gracia? Yeah. So, so she's she's like the best known Dona Gracia Mendez. I think it was she has like a couple different names. Um but she was Portuguese, I think. Um, yeah, I mean Mendez is a common uh Spanish Portuguese name. Yeah. There is a Mendez um, family. The person I'm thinking of I thought was Italian because I heard it from someone Italian. Hold on. She was very cool though. She was like actually extremely cool. Um I mean not that the other women weren't, but like she she was just yeah, she like ran like she she ran empires and it was incredible. We are so off topic. <laughs> <laughs> we are off topic. Yeah, I mean I didn't I didn't find who I was looking for, but I did discover Anna Hebrea, also known as Anna the Hebrew or Anne of Rome, was an Italian Jewish beautician and cosmetician. She's one of the earliest Jewish businesswomen of her profession Ooh, to be documented. That's very cool. In living around um, Florence in 1508. Mm. She's known for a business letter she sent from Rome to her client. Um, interesting. Well, Tamar, do you have anything else uh, I need to bring up? I Well, I kind of thought that SM was going to just go through like all of Star Trek ever. I so was I not going to do that. <laughs> I have so um, many other other meta narratives <laughs> well i thought i thought well this is the other one i thought i really just thought like okay this is for them like i'm gonna take a step back i really thought michael was gonna bring up the thief oh it's on my list um, because <laughs> okay, oh, okay never mind see see like any anything i was thinking of i was just like oh one of them will talk about it so <laughs> i just thought of my immediate things um, I just think in general storytelling is cool. I was trying to think of some K-pop stuff specifically because, like, that's my thing. Um, and then I started getting like existential about like what it means to be a pop star in 2022, and I was like, not going into that on this podcast right now. <laughs> um, and like the stories you tell as a person on social media and, and oh world. god, yeah, well, don't get started about but, how all interviews yeah, are so basically scripted. So yes, yes. Um. So why don't one of you go? Cause and I'll just like jump in because I honestly was just like thinking of so like I full disclosure for anyone listening. I just moved back from Hong Kong to New York and it's been like a week and a half, but it's been a very busy week and a half, and I'm still jet lagged. And my dog woke me up at five a.m. this morning, so like I'm not a person right now. Um, <laughs> so I'm happy to be ears to listen and sometimes be a voice, but I don't think I can spear <laughs> okay. this conversation. <laughs> no worries at all. Entirely valid. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'll just pop in with The Thief just because you mentioned it. Um, I mean, there's a lot of ways that those books play with meta narratives, but one of one of the, I think, most obvious ways is that they all include um, some kind of story within the world. So they're usually myths um, and they're told by the characters uh, to each other for various reasons. Um, and actually one of the one of the instances in the first book, um, 
there's a there's an argument between characters about which version of the story is true and you know the 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 one of the characters is told that you know oh your version was probably just you know changed through through the centuries you know told by women um to to their children but you know my version i looked it up in a book and it was and it was in the book um obviously that that character does not turn out to be right about many things <laughs> um, <laughs> bless him. um but uh yeah no that i thought that was just a a really interesting part of the story that like you know a, it kind of sets it apart but also adds uh, you know a very real and human dimension to to this to the world and again kind of plays with that perspective of you know whose whose story is important here and why yeah um so i have other things on my list but we are going along so sm if you want to like just hit some and wrap it up we can totally do that okay so i have just like two that i i uh, can group together kind of thematically um so the 27th man um is a short story I think it's now it now is a play. When I googled it now, it shows up as a play. But um, I read it as a short story um, by Nathan Englander, and I cannot really tell you what it was about. I don't remember because um, what I do remember is how it made me feel, and I just I remember finishing it and just having this you know profound sense of of sadness and tragedy. Um, and it has all of these um, stories within stories, little, little uh, like, not so much myths, but just stories that are told um, within the story. And I felt like it wouldn't have been, you know, without those pieces, without all the pieces coming together, it, I didn't think it would have had the impact that it had. And that makes me feel like a meta-narrative can can often be an opportunity for um, the writer to, you know, one, two punch you uh, right in the feels, you know, they can work on the same themes, but they get to do it twice. And from often from, you know, two different angles um, and it can combine to produce um, an effect that a single story wouldn't have. Um, And that to me tied into my uh, other thing on the list, which was Lost. Um, I don't know if mm. either of you watched Lost at the time that it was oh, on. Yes. That's a um, good one. But I watched it. Unfortunately, and every episode um, is basically a small uh, meta narrative for each character because um, episodes would focus on individual characters and you would get they're a storyline of what was going on with them in the present on the island where they've all crashed. Um, but you'd also get um, a story from their life before the island um, that would somehow inform or emotionally resonate with what was going on in the, in the present day story. Um, and it would, you know, sometimes the story that was in the past would be kind of thematically repeating itself. And sometimes it would be about how the character has learned from that past experience. And in this present day story goes in a different direction um, and achieves a kind of redemption um, from that past act. Uh, And yeah, it was just lost was very much 
Um, if you're going to watch it for narrative purposes um, and narrative closure, you're not going to get it. <laughs> um, but if you're watching it from the perspective of character and emotional closure, I think that that was something that they did extremely well um, on an episode-by-episode basis. And um, I remember finishing the finale and feeling like... Um, I felt the same way about Battlestar Galactica, the finale, that I got, I got emotional closure with these characters, but I didn't, I didn't get narrative closure with the story because, yeah, they didn't really know what they were doing. But that you got to go in knowing that, and I think if you do, you can appreciate it. Um, but if you, uh, you know, if you didn't know that, as we, you know, watching at the time, didn't know that it wasn't actually going to come together properly. Um, then you're probably going to end up <laughs> frustrated and feeling betrayed. But um, yeah, I remember finishing it and feeling emotionally satisfied for, by the by the narrative, by the meta narratives and the way that they combined. Um, even if the the actual overall present day storyline didn't really work, I think that's a really good thing to bring up and it kind of makes me loop back to the Haggadah in like a weird kind of way of like yes let's it, go full circle it, well we kind of have like which one do we have closure on we we kind of have like similar character closure i guess with the Haggadah right because like the whole perspective is like we're we're free you know we were slaves and now we are free but like you know the 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 Haggadah or the main portion of the Haggadah ends with, you know, next year in Jerusalem. Like where we aren't mm-hmm. like the, the, the narrative is not quite over. Yeah. Hmm. We are still in the middle of the narrative. Right, exactly. Right. Which is actually a thing I was thinking about bringing up Babylon five and I hadn't, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, mm-hmm. but like Babylon five has like all of these rich cultures with all of their narratives and their stories um, and ultimately, I think that you realize that the show that you're watching is actually part of these stories um, and gets uh, and gets incorporated and built in. Um, yeah, so the Haggadah is in that in that sense, we are part of the story and we're still in the middle of it. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. That was an intense and thought-provoking conversation i i won't lie um <laughs> yeah i think that went better than i expected honestly <laughs> um yeah that was that was great um i think we're gonna wrap it up there but of course if you have any any thoughts on our any meta commentary on our meta commentary on meta commentaries um do of course let us know um so like we're in the hall of infinite mirrors yeah. <laughs> right now. <laughs> God, I hate those things. They're so creepy. Um, <laughs> I just think of the racing. Oh God, yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Still not sure what that means. Anyway, <laughs> yes, yeah, I'm so glad. It's okay, the writers aren't either. Oh, uh, Tamar, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Tamar Writes, or you could, excuse me, uh. You could read my articles at currently the South China Morning Post's website, or you could just find everything up to at tomorrowherman.com. Awesome. And SM, how about you? 
Um, you can follow my public posts on Facebook, my very occasional tweets on Twitter at Floating Spirals. Um, you can buy my fiction at Amazon.com slash author slash SM Rosenberg. Um, and you can follow my intermittent newsletter at uh, smrosenberg.substack.com. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Ink as Rain. And uh, I do some other podcasts, including the Level 7 Access podcast, the uh, Podcast of Surprise, and the Vassals of Kingsgrave podcast. Um, you can also find our amazing editor, Jamie, on Twitter. Uh, they are at Jamie underscore Bloomberg, and you can find their website at jamberg.me. As for us at Nice Jewish Fangirls, you can email us at NiceJewishFangirls at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at JewishFangirls, because it wasn't long enough for the nice. And uh, we are also on Facebook. Uh, as, as mentioned at the top of the show, you can also leave us an iTunes review or a review on any other please, podcasting please, please, please. app which you so use choose to use um all right so that's gonna do it for us uh don't hate us for talking about Pesach and uh <laughs> live long and prosper by the time this comes out it's gonna be like so close to I Pesach know. people won't be mad at us yeah yeah I know well still <laughs> I hope I hope people won't be mad at us <laughs> all right live long and prosper everyone <laughs>